Uh, we'll see. How are you reading now? How are you reading now? We have no communication since Sunday. The Sunday night again, the last of the communication box. What do you mean? Outside the green box, which is the guy who shows the trucks. Oh, so you have no internet? We had no internet until today. Oh my. For the last few days, I was watching TV and working through the phone, through the hotspot. Could have came here? Yeah. Bring your laptop here. I repeated the computer, the big computer, the desktop. Um, um. Remember our friends that came last year when they, when they came with me one Friday night, the Israeli night, a year and <coughs> last year. Um, yeah, it could be, yeah. And he's now in a bad in condition in the hospital with COVID. Wait. Yeah, it's medic and <laughs> just one second.
Okay. Everybody hear me there? Yeah, I could hear you. How do I hear myself double? Yes, I can hear you. Yeah. Okay, just one second. I'm just trying to figure out. Why here double? Oh, mm -hmm. my thing is. Okay. Just one second. I'm trying to post the um, a link so you whoever doesn't have the book. Can anybody see the chat room? See the chat? I put a link for the online textbook if anybody can see it. It's for my son's, it's under my son's name. I can see the chat, but I don't see that. I you don't see a link there? No, but I messaged you something. I hear when people are on Zoom, we're talking. Now I hear people talking. Yeah, not last week. Oh yeah, last week that was a problem because it had something in. Just give us okay. a second here. I'm trying to. Let me try something else here. Just one second. <coughs> Rabbi, did you want everybody on mute except when we're asking a question? Yes, please. Okay. Okay. In the uh, chat box, there is, I'm just going to close the chat. In the chat, you have the actual. Um, it's posted now. I posted it now so you can see it. Yep, it's here. Okay. 
I think we're ready to start. I'm just going to my Zoom here. I don't know why I'm not seeing this. Just hold on a second. My, you see, my son's not here today, and all of a sudden, I'm, uh, I'm lost. I let him take the controls. There we go. You see everybody? Where's my screen? Where's my screen? Does everybody see this? Do you guys see this? You guys see the screen up there, right? It says Journey of the Soul Lesson 2 with a lady on a bike. Okay, so now we're going to share the screen again. There we go. I still can't see me. Um, where's my screen? That's all the people. Oh, there we go. Here we go. Okay. Thank you, everybody, for hanging in there. Everybody here, thank you for hanging in there as well. I hope everybody's doing well. Let me just move over my uh, little thing here. Can everybody see the screen? Today we are going to be starting Journey of the Soul number two. I'm giving up a clicker here. Maybe today it's going to work. Okay. And I'm just going to angle this guy a little bit here so you can see me. Going to see if this works. Of course not. Okay. So, welcome everybody to class number two of Journey of the Soul. And I hope you're all comfortable wherever you may be, safe and sound. And today we move on to the second part of our course, second class of our course, which is taking leave, talking about the time that the soul leaves this world. As we mentioned in our previous class, that when the soul leaves this world, it's merely a transition from one place to the next. And we are going to talk about today the spiritual significance of that transition vis-a-vis -vis the soul and to the people who the soul is related and have a relationship with. They say there was once this rabbi who went to a synagogue one morning and he saw this dead raccoon, dead mule, I should say, in the front yard. So he decided he's going to call the police. He knew the police. They were very nice people. So he decided he'll call the police. And the police says, listen here, there's no foul play. There's nothing we can do. You got to call the health department. So he calls the health department. And the health department said, the mule doesn't have any health threats. So therefore, there's nothing we can do. We cannot pick up the mule without any authorization of the mayor. Now, the rabbi knew that the mayor was not too eager to listen to him because the mayor was a very uh, hypersensitive temperamental individual and he was not the easiest person to deal with so but the mule's got to be moved so the rabbi calls up the mayor and the mayor starts yelling at him and says why are you calling me about this and everything else and there's so many people you could have called what are you calling me for so the rabbi calmly tells the mayor he says you know it's my job to bury the dead and the first responsibility of burying the dead is that I have to notify the, first, the next of kin. So now that we got that passed, let's talk about what we're going to talk about today. Today, our class is going to be split up into four different parts. The first part we're going to talk about today 
is going to be the moment of passing, the spiritual significance of the moment of passing. In section two of our class today, we're going to talk about the process of the soul's departure, the departure of from the body. Then in section three and four, we're going to talk about the care of the body and interment once the soul passes and the interment and the purpose and the, and the very strong purpose for burying a body at the time of death. And finally, in the last part of our class today, we're going to talk about the concept of grave visitation, the importance of it and why it's done, how it's done and when it should be done and what the relationship and why it's important. So let's go back to why all these four topics are so interrelated and so, and so important. As we discussed in the previous class, that the connection that the soul has with the body as it departs from this world, and the purpose of the soul depart and when the soul departs from the body, there's a certain type of connection that still retains with the body and the soul when the soul passes on. As we mentioned last week, the soul's departure from this world is merely a transition and a new beginning and the onset of a new phase. And for that reason, make sure we're being recorded here, just one second. Yeah. And for that reason, sorry to interrupt again, just making sure that we it's being recorded for those. Okay, and for that reason, as long as the soul, as the soul leaves this world, the soul, it leaves, it's, it just merely moves on in transition to another place where it's no longer tethered or limited or confined by the materialism, by the finite body, and thereby moves on to a world which is absolutely spiritual. But what happens when the soul leaves the body? What exactly happens to the soul and what happens to the body? How does that relationship continue? What is about that relationship? And how do we, the so to speak survivors, the relatives and friends of the deceased relate to the soul that departed? And to understand this, we're going to look at a letter that the first Chabad Rebbe penned in 1788 to a group of Hasidic Jews who their master, who was a colleague of the Alter Rebbe, recently passed away. Just to give you a little context of what happened here. After the Baal Shem Tov's passing, who was the founder of Hasidism, the successor of the Baal Shem Tov was the Maggot of Mizrich. The Maggot of Mizrich, who was actually older, according to some, than the Baal Shem Tov, after he passed on, in 1772, we're going back, 1772, the disciple, the oldest disciple of the Maggot of Mizrich, his name was Ramanacha Mendel of Haradak, he became the successor of the Maggot of Mizrich. In 1778, in 1777, the Ramanacha of Haradak decided that he was going to immigrate to the land of Israel, to Tveria, Tzvas, that area, and took with him a whole group of Hasidim that went to the land of Israel leaving the first Chabad Rebbe, the Alter Rebbe, who was his colleague behind in Russia, who would be then the leader of the Hasidic fellowship in Russia, in White Russia at the time. In 1779, two years after his arrival, Rabbi Nachman Mendel of Haradag, 1778, actually, 1788, I'm sorry, 1788 is when 
the Rabbi Nacha Mendel of Harada passed away, and the uh, this is when this letter was sent from the first Chabad Rebbe, the Alter Rebbe, to the Hasidim, the disciples of Rabbi Nacha Mendel of Haradak in Tveria. Now, what this letter is about, it's actually printed in the Tanya. What this letter is about, this letter is talking to the bereaved Hasidim and explaining to them the connection that the Rebbe has with them. And now the connection is even more intensified because he is not limited by their physical body and his physical absence should not be something that they should be grieve on, but it is something that they can continue to follow and have a connection with him even after his passing and they can even have a deeper relationship. And that's the context, a little bit of the substance of what that letter is about. And today we're gonna to read that letter and understand it and apply it to what we're talking about. However, before we actually read the text of the letter, there's something that we have to understand when he uses the terminology that is used in this letter. And we know that according to tradition, the human soul is made up of five components and those that were ever in Shul or Rosh Hashanah Yom Kippur know that we talk about, especially on Yom Kippur, that there are five services on Yom Kippur and each one of them represent another component of the soul. But for purposes of today's uh, class and what our text, we are going to talk about only the two lower components of the soul, which in Hebrew are called nefesh and ruach. Literally, nefesh means another word for psyche or soul, or ruach means ear or oxygen. Now, generally, when we talk about these two levels of the soul, the nefesh is the component, the physical component of the soul, and the ruach is more the spiritual, which gives the spiritual component. The soul, which gives, so to speak, the oxygen, the part that you don't see, while the nefesh is referred to the blood, to the part that you do see. Once a person passes away, the part of the soul that served as the biological function of the soul, which we would call the nefesh, still remains within the body. And what part leaves the body is the ruach. For that reason, the moment the person passes away, the body is still there, it's still existing, it doesn't cease to exist, it doesn't just disappear, poof. Why? Because the nefesh is still in the body. The part of the soul that leaves the body at when the person passes away is ruach. So if we want to look at it at this, um, from this perspective, we will see that the nefesh is more the physical life, while the ruach, while the ruach is the emotional, the spiritual, the life of the feelings that the person had and so on. Now, what happens to them once the, what happens with the physical towards versus the emotional once the person passes on? The physical stays within the body in the grave. And we're gonna get to why then we visit the grave and all this has a very important component to it. While the ruach, which is the spiritual and the emotional, the feelings is what ascends to Ganeiden, heaven above. Okay, so now that we know these two facts, number one, that the nefesh stays in the grave, the ruach part of the soul goes, ascends on high, we can now understand what the Alter Rebbe is going to tell us. Yes. How long does the nefesh stay? Very good question. Hold on, we're going to get to that in a moment. So now let's look 
at the Alter Rebbe's letter. It's in text number 1A, page 43, for those that are following along in the books. The Alter Rebbe is as follows. It's a little bit longer of a text, so bear with me. As it's known, the life of a tzaddik, a righteous person, is not physical but spiritual. It consists of faith, reverence, and love of God. During the tzaddik's lifetime on earth, these three attributes that belong to the soul's dimension of ruach are constrained within their container and garb, namely the nefesh, that is bound to the corporal body. This imposes the restraints of a physical space upon these attributes. As a result, all the tzaddik's disciples receive but a glow of these ruach attributes, a mere ray that is emitted beyond the container by means of the tzaddik's holy words and thoughts. The inability to receive directly from the ruach is a, revel is a revelatory handicap. And therefore, our sage has stated that it takes 40 years for a student to fully plumb to the depths of his father of his master's teachings. By contrast, after the tzaddik passes away, the nefesh separates from the ruach, remains in the grave while the ruach and the three attributes rise to Ganadin. Consequently, whoever is close to the tzaddik can receive directly from his ruach in Ganadin because the ruach is no longer restrained in a container or confined to a physical space. There is now a straightforward path for the tzaddik's disciples to connect with the essence of their master, ruach of faith, awe and love in which the tzaddik serves God. And not merely these attributes, outer glow that escape beyond the container, the disciples connect, receive, commensurate to the degree their loving connection and closeness to the tzaddik during his lifetime and after his death. For the transmission of all things spiritual is always by means of a great love. So what is the Alter Rebbe telling us over here? Number one, what is a tzaddik's life while he's alive? A tzaddik, a righteous person's life while he's alive, it's all about love, it's all about spirituality, it's all about reverence, faith, belief in God. So therefore, when the tzaddik passes on, what changed? That means when you have the tzaddik is alive, what are you enjoying of the tzaddik? What do you gain from being close to a tzaddik that you can have a little bit of that faith, that belief, that reverence, that holiness, that awesomeness should have a ripple effect on you. But because the tzaddik is constrained to a container of the body, you need a master, a method of having a relationship with that tzaddik. But now that the tzaddik's ruach, his soul is now gone on high, it's unleashed from the physical constraints it is easier and more accessible for one to be able to have a relationship with the tzaddik's love, fear, reverence of God. Why? Because the physical avenues of connection are now shut off. It's absolutely only spiritual. And as long as you tap into it, A, you're getting a deeper love than you had before because it's not constrained by anything physical or material. B, it's more accessible because, again, it's not constrained. So the very fact that the ruach, that the soul part of it, the spiritual has now left the physical, and we're going to use the term ruach and nefesh to be able to get more feeling into what we're talking about here. The very fact that the ruach and the nefesh are now individualized is significant on its own. Vis-a-vis -vis the deceased relationship with us here in this world. And we will see that in the next text on text number 1b. And the Rebbe says as follows, text number 1b. 
It is also a matter of common sense that whatever the direct cause of separation of the soul from the body, whether a fatal accident or a fatal illness, it could only affect any of the vital organs of the physical body, but it can no way affect the spiritual soul. A further point, which is also understandable, is that during the soul's lifetime on earth, its partnership with the body, the soul is necessarily handicapped in certain respects by the requirements of the body, such by eating, drinking, as holy as you are, even the greatest tzaddik, whose entire life is consecrated to God, cannot escape the restraints of life in material and physical environment. Consequently, when the time comes for the soul to return home, it is essentially a release for it and makes an ascent to a higher world, no longer restrained by a physical body and physical environment. Henceforth, the soul is free to enjoy spiritual bliss of being near Hashem in the fullest measure. What we see over here, what the Rebbe is telling us is, as great as you are in the spiritual of a life you live while you're in this world, doesn't matter. You still are handicapped. You still need to eat. You still need to drink. You still need to sleep. You still have materials constraints. You can only be in one place at one time. So a tzaddik's whole entire life was this value of absolute spirituality. And now the soul is released from the body. How much more so it has a relationship with anything spiritual that connects to it. Here's a cute little video that uses the psychological idea of something called intentional blindness. This oh. was me talking about a tzaddik's life. I'm sorry, I missed the slideshow. But here you go. Doesn't always listen. How many passes does the team in white make? Go! The answer is 13. But did you see the moonwalking bear? That's what psychologists call inattentional blindness. And no, it is not a condition to be concerned about. In fact, life would be impossible without it. Let me explain. As powerful as the human brain may be, it is easily overwhelmed by the sheer onslaught of observation, calculation, sight, sound, and signals that envelop our every waking hour. The brain cannot permit itself to register and record each image and movement every message and stimulation. Instead, our brains and nervous systems aggressively filter and limit our intake to manageable levels. The result? We notice a fraction and ignore the fullness and remember far less. Often, we purposely engage in what cognitive neuroscientists call selective attention, like focusing on a dinner partner in a crowded restaurant while tuning out all other conversations in the room. Now imagine that you had the ability to absorb everything around you, 
to absorb, comprehend, and recall all the details and fetch every memory at will without being overwhelmed. That is the incredible experience of the human soul once it detaches from the body at the close of a lifetime. Unshackled from the frailties of a nervous system, unrestricted by networks of neurons, it is unbelievably free and powerfully present. It is free to absorb truths that mortal minds cannot contain, present to delight in the divine radiance that courses through the cosmos, to bask in divine understanding that supersedes human senses, but is savored by the newly liberated soul. condition the way it is in our lifetime whether we like it or not we're limited we are limited to our emotions we're limited in our feelings we're limited in many things and how we process things we are incapable of processing and experiencing emotions of the way they are in their essential level for whatever reason it may be some of us don't want to some of us ignore it and some of us are just incapable of it for whatever reason it may be the bottom line is the very fact that we are alive in a body is a limitation by its own. The moment the soul leaves the body, the soul then can have a soulful feeling, an essential love that it never had before. Take, for example, you take a video in HD, you know, they make 4K HD. There's so many different names. They don't even know what it is anymore. But what does it make a difference? If you don't have a device to be able to play that high definition or high resolution, it doesn't make a difference what you took it. The soul, while it's in this world, doesn't have the capability of playing it in high definition of what it really feels and what it really reacts to. It experiences life. It experiences many different things, but not in its deepest level. It only begins to feel its deepest level the moment it passes on once the Ruach leaves the Nefesh. This is explains why the moment of a person's passing is so significant. At that moment, all the spiritual energy is unleashed. Everything it gathered throughout its lifetime, everything it's done, it's no longer tethered to any materialistic or finite being. It stops and all of a sudden, boom, it's like a slingshot. And that's why that moment is so special. And that's why that moment is felt by all those around. While the Alter Rebbe was talking about at Tzaddik when he was addressing the letter to the Hasidim in Israel, he wasn't only referring to a Tzaddik. Every single one of us has faith, love, feelings, emotions, anything which is not physical or tangible is what is part of the Ruach is what is part of that level of what we call Ruach. Everything that is not tangible is what leaves the body when the body ceases to, when the soul separates from the body. So all our holy and beautiful ideas, feelings, emotions, principles are all rooted in that level of Ruach. And when a loved one passes away, all these ideas, all these ideals, all these principles, they don't just vanish they're not just gone, but they actually are intensified. Not only intensified, 
but they are actually more accessible to those who the loved one or the loved person had any type of relationship. And even if a person who didn't have a relationship, they can still have a relationship. Because the more we love, the more we connect. And the more we connect, we are able to have a deeper connection to that person and the deepest love. You ever think about it? After a person passes away, people get up and they eulogize. They talk about that person. And they talk about all the great qualities that that person had. And they exhibit and they think about or not even so, even if they don't talk about it, even their own family. The moment the person passes away, they all of a sudden start saying, wow, that person had some special quality to them. Something we haven't recognized while he was alive. How many times does it take a month or a year or even a few days where the family starts to talk about the person, their loved one that has passed away in such noble terms that you've never even known they've believed so greatly about this person who passed away. Not because they're making things up. There's several reasons for this. One reason simply is absence makes the heart grow fonder. When you have something right by you, when you have something every single day you don't appreciate, when you see a good quality of a person, but because you've become so used to it, you don't appreciate the person, the moment the person passes away, there's no exposure to it. And all of a sudden you start feeling the lack, the, the, the loss. But in a deeper level, we take it even a step further. It is because now the Ruach is now so essentially unlimited and unbridled by the physical that you, because the, you, the loved one, or you, the one that has a relationship, has that relationship with the one who passed on, you now feel it more. Because until now, they were in a container which limited their accessibility and their ability to express their feelings. And us, as people, also have our physical limitations. But the moment they don't have any limitation, they have the essential love, they have the essential belief and ideal, they come shining through even stronger as well. And for that reason, clearly on the moment of passing, when the soul leaves the body, for the soul, that's the ultimate celebration. And that is the interesting dichotomy that happens when a soul leaves the body. The wall of soul leaves the body for the soul itself, for the Ruach, it is the greatest release, greatest celebration. But while the loved ones here mourning, it's a great loss. For that reason, on the day of the passing, it's not a time to celebrate. The seed, those that are nearest and nearest to the deceased have a very hard time to understand or even comprehend, let alone celebrate. But every year concurrently after that, on the day of the yard site, is a time where it is actually celebrated, celebrating the life of that person and the difficult time of passing, but celebrating the concept of the deep love that's rooted and enshrined within each person that has a relationship. As the Alter Rebbe explains over there, that to be in touch with the deceased, all we need to do is feel the love for the deceased. Feel Not only feel the love for the deceased, but even the love for the qualities and the ideals that the deceased wanted. And that creates a relationship. 
But at the same time, a true relationship demands that we meet the people on their terms, that we meet any type of relationship. You can't have a relationship and say, I'm going to be who I want to be, and you're going to be who you want to be, and we should have a relationship. Every relationship means that we both come together on certain terms. Or either you go to their terms, they come to your terms, but you can be in two separate plateaus, two separate islands and say, I have a relationship. I have a wonderful relationship. As the guy that used to say, they asked him how you married for 50 years without any issues. He said, oh, me and my wife, we go out twice a week. I go out Mondays and Wednesdays, she goes on Tuesdays and Thursdays. That's a wonderful relationship because nobody's talking to each other, right? That's not a relationship. A relationship means that you're going to meet the person on their terms. In our instance, what we're talking about is, it would mean that we need to become more soulful, that we need to become more spiritual, that when a person passes away, many or even those things that they were interested before, and they're not interested in the steak and the good cup of wine or whatever it may be. What they're interested in now is the love, the feelings, the emotions, the ideals, the principles they live for. And the way we develop a relationship with them is to live those qualities and those ideals and those things that they live for. And to love the things they love and to be embraced in the things. And, the, and that's the way we continue a relationship with our loved ones. Because it's a continuing bond. It's a continuing relationship. Is it easy? That's not easy. But whoever said relationships are easy. Relationships aren't easy. But that's the way we have a relationship. Understandably, the moments before passing can be very difficult. And because the moments before passing can be very difficult and emotional for the person that's dying, for many different reasons, for those, for the person that's dying and for the family around, for the end of life, decisions that they have to make, medical care, helping the person manage their distress, there is much medical literature that is discussed. There's palliative care, all the different things that they have today to help those that are tending to a person who is in distress, especially if they're tending to somebody who's passing away. And some of the things over here that we have up here on the board that can help a person during this time is number one, to reminisce about good memories, to be open and emotionally honest and communicate with the person that's dying about the good times that they had, the good memories they share together, and that helps relieve the stress from the family members who are there at the time, as well as the person who is passing. Number two, physical contact, holding the hand of the person that's in the bed, feeling close to that in the person. Of course, there's different issues that come up in halachically. However, one has to know that but physical contact, there's something which can be very soothing for the dying person, as well as for the relatives. Another thing is, sometimes people always think they have to say something. Sometimes, as we're going to read in the next uh, class, we'll learn about it in the next class, sometimes the best things said are not said. Not saying anything is sometimes even better, as it says in the Talmud. Saying something is worth one dollar. Not saying anything, being quiet is worth two. Being quiet, not always answering, not always saying something is sometimes even more helpful. And just being there for the person just simply is a gift that a person can have at their last moments. And finally, another thing which could be setting a comfortable atmosphere, playing some music that can help. There's something called music therapy and all that stuff, which helps with relaxation and even lessens the pain for the person who is dying at his last moment. 
But based on what we just learned, it may seem that the soul would be happy, released, re re excited, that finally, boom, it's released out of jail. It's not confined anymore to the body. And it's free to go and untethered and untied and un undone that it can finally go where its place is. And to enter a dimension to where the soul would essentially want to be spiritually free. Doesn't have to be confined to the body. And think of the body as seemingly as a distant memory and forget about all those limitations and all the selfishness that the body had for it. But yet, the Zohar tells us otherwise. Text number two. The Zohar says on page 47, text number two, nothing is as hard for the soul as its separation from the body. Now, why would that be? Why would death be so difficult for the soul? We just finished saying in one and a half classes that the soul is merely transitioning to another world and the soul is now going to be released from the confines of the body. What's so difficult? What's so difficult? It should, be it should be reveling in joy. It should be so excited. So number one, what's the thing that most people don't like? Change. I'm happy where I am. Don't bother me. What's the most difficult thing for kids when they move school, transitioning from one class to the next or whatever it may be? Transition is something which is difficult no matter who you are. Even good transitions. Moving into a new job where they're paying you more money. You're excited about it, but it's tough. Every transition comes with its own set of challenges. You have your comfort. You have your routine. You have what you're used to. And therefore, automatically, in any time you transition, there's its complexities that come with it. That's number one. Number two, last week we learned... Now, what's the ultimate purpose of the world, of why God created the soul and the body? The ultimate purpose is this physical world. The soul knows that. The soul believed it had a mission. The soul knows that it had something to do in this world. And just to leave that mission, even though it was garbed in a physical body, and even though it was limited, the soul says, but now I can't do mitzvahs anymore. Like Rabbi Yehuda Hanasi, we learned in last week's class, was crying because now I'm not going to be able to do mitzvot. I'll be relishing in spirituality, but I'll never be able to put a coin in charity again. I'll never be able to put on tefillin again. I'll never be able to, to, to put on tzitzis again, whatever it may be. Correct? Any of those physical things. Rabbi? Thirdly, sorry? Question. When I thought... Can't hear you. Okay. Can you hear me now? I can try. Try again. Yes. Okay, I thought that this God, does, I, or at least I've heard that God doesn't take your soul until you've completed your mission. Oh, that's why you got to wait for number three. Okay. Thirdly, thirdly, why does the soul upset? Because all this time, the soul enters this world on a mission, on a mission to accomplish something. And in order for the soul to fulfill the mission, the soul needs the body. The soul can't do the body, it can't do the mission without the body. And now the soul wasn't experiencing this wonderful relationship that it had. And yes, maybe the relationship was limiting and confining, but that relationship allowed the soul 
to do its job. That relationship allowed the soul to complete its mission. And that relationship, to a degree, the soul became attached to the body with its earthly, earthly surroundings. And all of a sudden now, separation anxiety begins. So, yes, the soul was put into this world for a mission. Yes, when the time comes, the mission is fulfilled, and therefore the soul goes up on high. But just because the mission is over doesn't mean that I don't miss what was my mission. Just because the mission is over, for example, a soldier that comes back from war, he may know that the mission is over, but he may still yearn for some experiences that he enjoyed there. The camaraderie, the people that he was with, and so on and so forth. So while in this world, there's a fusion of the body and soul seems 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 so seamless, seems so seamless. Still in all, once the body now has to separate from the soul, there's a certain anxiety that sets in for the soul. And the pain that the soul experiences is like the Zohar explains, there is nothing as hard as the soul as to separate itself from the body. That means despite all the obstacles that the body presents, despite the limitations of the confining that the body presents, the soul would rather be in this body because it's, so to speak, attached by the hip, literally. It's that package deal. It was working well. They did their job. They were accomplishing a mission. And all of a sudden, there's a separation. And actually, to take it a step further, the soul is so attached to the body that it takes time for the soul and the body to separate. It's not a one-time separation. And as you're going to see, that the separation of the soul and the body corresponds, and we're going to get to this in a moment, so don't jump at me all at once, to the time of mornings that are set in Jewish law. What does that mean? And let's see what the Talmud, the Jerusalem Talmud says, text number three. For three days, the soul hovers over the, above the body, thinking that it can return to it. After three days, when it sees that the body's face has changed, it leaves the body and it departs. This is counterintuitive because we would think that the soul would all of a sudden just fly out of the body, get as far as it can from the body to be independent because that's what it wants. That's what ultimately happens. But really, what we see over here is that the soul realized that the body was so integral to its mission that for the first three days, the soul continues to hover over the body. That means as long as the body is intact, the soul finds it very difficult to leave. And during this interim period, while the body decomposes, the soul is somewhat displaced. It's not sure where it is. It's wishy-washy. It's back and forth. So the soul ascends a little bit. It's still hovering over the body until the, the, the face decomposes. What happens in the next seven days? And here there are four stages, as we're going to see. The first stage is the three days. The second stage is the seven days. The Zohar says, text number four, eight, page 50. For seven days, the soul goes from house where it lived to the grave and from the grave back to the house. And it mourns its body. After seven days, the body is subjected to its fate and the soul ascends to its place. So you see over here, for seven days, the soul vacillates. It's not sure from the grave to the home, 
from the home to the grave, the soul is back and forth. It still doesn't want to leave. It's still finding some attachment. And what's the third stage? It's 30 days. As it says in the Zohar, it continues, text 4b. For the 30 days, the soul and body are judged as one. And thus the soul is located down here on earth. After that, the soul ascends while the body erodes on earth. And then comes the final stage of 12 months, where finally the soul comes at peace. For 12 months, the body still exists and the soul ascends and descends. After 12 months, the body becomes null and the soul no longer returns. Over here, we have the sources. What we see is four different sources telling us the different stages of how the soul leaves the body. Number one, you have the three days, the seven days, the 30 days, and the 12 months. What we see over here is there's a process of the Ruach separating from the Nefesh, from the moment of death. What's the process here? And we will see how these, this process of the soul's gradual um, separation from the time when this body begins to decompose until the 12 months tells us how the relationship that we, the people here, mourn the loss of the deceased and how we mourn the person because the soul's relationship to its nefesh the soul's relationship to its body has a relevance and a connection and is reflected on the people that have a relationship with the soul. And how's that? As it turns out, interestingly enough, the amount of days as we talk about the soul's different stages of disconnect reflects in the days of mourning to the person as well, to the relatives. As my mama, these outlines, the laws of mourning, in text number five, mourners observe three days of weeping, seven days of eulogies, 30 days of restriction of haircuts, and wearing freshly ironed clothing, marrying, joining celebrations of friends and traveling on business. So what we see over here, three days of weeping. Why weeping? Because the soul is still there. Why seven days that we save mourning? Because the soul is vacillates between both places. 30 days, you're still in mourning. You still have to have the time that the person doesn't cut their ear or whatever it may be because the soul is still located on earth. And then when it comes to the 12 days, according to Jewish tradition, we find, as it says, the extended period of mourning for the 12 months, as we see in text number six, if you encounter an acquaintance within 30 days of that person having lost the next of kin, offer words of consolation and avoid customary pleasantries. If the 30 days have elapsed since the relative's passing, Greet your acquaintance in the usual manner and offer indirect words of consolation. Avoid mentioning the deceased by name and extend generic consolation such as may be comforted. If your acquaintance is mourning the loss of a parent, you should offer a direct messages of comfort for the 12, first 12 months and only after that scale it back in indirect consolation. What we see over here, and as we're going to talk about these different stages of mourning in the next, next week at length, but this is just a general outline of the stages of mourning. What the Talmud over here is telling us, that these times of mourning, these stages that we're going to talk about, really relate to how a person is the different four stages of mourning. And the four stages of mourning mirror the degree of the struggle that the soul is going through in order to release itself from the body.
And when we mourn, what we're mourning is we're actually not only mourning for the deceased, but actually with the deceased. As that soul goes from level to level, from stage to stage, in getting more, becoming more spiritual and disconnecting itself and the pain and the suffering that it's going through, the anxiety, so to speak, that the Ruach has from the separation of the soul that we empathize with its connection and that's the way we continue it. Based on this, we now understand an interesting halacha, Jewish law. If you look in text number seven, on page 54, if a person dies and leaves no, no, no next of kin to be comforted, 10 people should go and sit in the deceased home. A man died in the, in the Rabbi Yehuda's neighborhood. As there were no mourners to be comforted, Rabbi Yehuda assembled 10 people every day and they sat in the deceased home. After seven days, the dead man appeared to Rabbi Yehuda in a dream and said, may your mind be addressed for you have set my mind at rest. That means if Shiva, if mourning was just to be able to comfort the mourners, then why should they have to go and make a minion and go and make and do mourning in the person's home if there was no mourners there? What we see from here is that the seven days of mourning are not necessarily for the mourners, but are more for the soul that have passed on. And that's why we know that the custom of the sitting of Shiva is in the home of the person who deceased or the place where he spent time, again, because of this gesture is not for the mourners necessarily, but it's actually the mourners are mourning together with the deceased. So what we see over here, when we go back to the four stages of mourning, mirror the four stages of departure. And what we look at it over here is we see number one, the degree of mourning will take us to the degree of the soul struggle. And we mourn for the soul is mourning, mourning for the soul, but we're mourning with the soul. So the bottom line is that during the Shiva is the mourners share the soul's pain and the comforters that come to comfort the mourners, they're not only comforting the mourners, but they're also comforting the soul of the deceased as well. Because of this, now that we've seen that the body is so integral to the soul's existence, we see now that the body is so integral to the soul's going departure, going into the world above, and that the notion that the deceased remains very much spiritually alive and connected to his loved ones during, and whoever would cherish this person during their life, lifetime is even more so expressed by a Jewish funeral. It's commonplace that by funerals, people attend the ceremony, listen to the rabbi's speech, talk about eulogies and everything else, and they attend the ceremony. One of the most important parts of the funeral is not actually attending the ceremony, but is at the end of the ceremony, when the deceased is escorted out. It's something called halvoya sames, escorting the dead. Escorting the dead, either whether it's walking the dead to the hearse, or whether the hearse and following behind it, or in the actual cemetery following to the actual grave site, that is a mitzvah. And the mitzvah is to escort the dead, escort the deceased to show respect, even if it's just for a short distance, to actually to show respect to the actual body, even though the soul already left it, right? The ruach left, this is the nefesh, to the cavity, to the container, to the nefesh that is there, we are showing respect to it 
as we bring it to its final resting place. And this leads us to our next topic of discussion, which is the interment of the deceased and the care of the body that, we, that precedes the funeral and how and why does a lifeless body have any importance? And to be able to understand why a lifeless body, which seemingly the soul is no longer there, the spiritual component of it is no longer there. Why is it so important? Why do we have to treat it with such respect as we're soon going to see? Text number 8a, look what the Talmud compares the body of a human being to. One who is present at the time of a person's passing is required to tear their clothing. This is because a person's passing is likened to the burning of a Torah scroll. The law is that if you are present in the room when a person passes away, the law is, according to Jewish law, that all those present in the room have to tear their garments. Now, in today's day and age, we don't do that. If, according to some, you can just pull out a thread, they don't actually tear the garments. The reason is because what happened was people stopped or were avoiding being in a very ill person's room and not there at the moment of fasting because they didn't want to tear their clothing. So therefore, the sage just said, you don't have to tear your clothing and it's better that they should be there for the comfort of the deceased than worry about tearing their clothing. And therefore, many who are there today would pull out a thread or whatever it may be because it's more important that somebody should be at the time when the person passes on. The cut, the, yeah, the cut that they do, but people would do it if they're in the room when the person passes away. According to Jewish law, that has to be done, even if you're not related. Anytime, any person. And the reason, and today it's not done because people were avoiding being in the room that they were worried that, you know, that they're going to be there when the person dies and so on. But today, as I mentioned, you don't have to do it. You can even do it by a thread and so on. But why is a person so, why is it that the human being is so compared to a Torah scroll? What's the, what's the commonality? What do they share? So number one, we'll start by what Maimonides says. Menachmanides, I'm sorry. Quote of Nachmanides is, text number 8b, Nachmanides points out that the sacred names of God that are like, that are inked into a Torah scroll parchment are as analogy as the sacred soul that is installed within the corporal body. The body of a Jew is makes up of flesh and bones. And therefore, what do we have? A human being is made up of a high, I'm sorry, a human being is made of flesh and bones. And what is a Torah scroll made up of? Skin, hide. We also have then, what happens then to the human being once it's made up of the flesh and bones? The ruach, the neshama, the soul becomes infused. So too God's name becomes inscribed on this entity, on this hide, making this hide now a sacred entity. And then, and then, and then the body becomes holy, so too, the parchment becomes something of holiness. The same idea we find. So we see the comparison between a human body, a human being, and a Torah, Torah scroll. This teaches us the importance, the way we treat a Torah. So too we have to treat the human, first, the human being, the body of the human being. That means the body on its own is independently holy. Look in text number nine, as he says, all who tend, a corpse must be aware that they are handling a holy entity. 
The human body is more than simply a sheath to secrete to, to sacred entity, a tool that serves as a permanent soul. Rather, it has become sanctified with an independent holiness similar to a Torah scroll. What we see over here, this underlying principle, the body, even without the soul, the body itself, the container, the cavity of the, of the soul, so to speak, is holy as a Torah scroll and has to be treated with such respect. And therefore, as we know in most Jewish communities, there is something called the Hevra Kadisha, they're called the Holy Society, that they are representatives, men and women, men for men, women for women, that they are the ones that are tasked with the necessary preparations of cleansing, cleaning, dressing the body that is needed and preparing that person for preparing this deceased for burial. In any of these cases, they are taken care of in the utmost respect. There's many blessings they say that, for example, they will always keep the person covered. They don't leave the person uncovered. Even when they're washing down and cleaning the person, they pick up one part and clean it and then cover it. There's utmost care and respect that's given to the body after 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 passing until burial they clean out all the tombs they clean out all the wounds and everything of that nature i always tell people i can tell you because i was in the Hebra condition when i was uh, lived in crown heights then and we did it did it an unbelievable care first of all they don't talk about it. you know not allowed to say what happened in the room you don't discuss the person you don't discuss it with any medical condition they came with do the privacy that exists i tell people till today if you care for your loved one you will make sure that they have a tara, not some funeral director that's using them in some mass uh, way or whatever. People that their sole objective is the care and the uh, respect that this person deserves. More so, for that reason as well, from the moment of death until burial, the body is never left alone. Now, any person can be there. It doesn't make a difference too, but the body should always be kept company with a shomer. Some people will say that it's a tehillim there or whatever it may be. As we will see in the next text, when somebody watches the body, that shows that you guard something which you protect, which you believe is sacred. And therefore, by guarding the body, this you're showing your sacredness to the body. As you see in text number 10, we are required to maintain a constant watch over the corpse or even during the daytime. And even if there is no cause to suspect that something can happen to the body, those who maintain watch are actively performing a mitzvah to the extent that they are meanwhile absolved from any other mitzvah, such as reading the Shema or reciting any prayers at the appropriate time. We maintain a watch over the dead out of respect for if we were to leave the body alone, it would appear as if we have abandoned it like a utensil that has no longer required. So just to summarize over here, some of the things that are done to a body that shows the holiness and the purity to the body. Here we have, number one, the body is handled with dignity and respect, cleaned and dressed in shrouds. No casual conversation can be done while the body is being washed or cleaned. The privacy of the body kept covered at all times, never placed face down and always guarded. Every part of the body, including the skin, bone fragments, tissue, fluid, all of it must be buried. All of this is considered holding. I'm sure you've seen videos of the after terrorist attacks. There's an organization called Zaka, <coughs> excuse me, that they come and they wipe down clean even the blood that's gone on sheets or stains or anything of that nature. All of it gets buried because it's all part of the body. Any bodily fluid 
even for example, a person who passes in a hospital, they will take the sheets that the person slept on and buried it as well. Anything that touched the body while the person died, no part of the body is too small. No part of the body should be lost. And every single part of the body is important, should be buried. Even if a person has a procedure while they're alive, even amputees that have to amputate a part of their body, that part of the limb should be buried as well. They'll come afterwards and take it. And a lot of times you'll see by the burial, they come with a bag and they put it in afterwards. Either they'll wrap it in the talus, but they should, or it's underneath the talus. Yeah. But in America, there's a coffin. So they just took every, put everything in the coffin. In Israel, it's just wrapped in a talus. So in order for it to get lost, they probably wrap it inside. So Rabbi, what about like if sorry, somebody, what about if somebody's in surgery and they remove something out of their body or something else? Yes, it should be buried. Okay. Like if they have a spleen removed or appendix removed or anything of that nature, should be buried. Oh. How do you bury it? Can just bury it in the ground. You don't the, the doc. Well, enough. For, no, not when the person dies. You bury it right then and there. No, I'm saying if a person has a procedure after their procedure or somebody else that should take the limb that they had during the procedure and bury it then. Suppose you know that you just bury it in your backyard. It doesn't have to be in a graveyard cemetery, just let me do. Until you die. No, 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 no. It gets buried and done over. Oh, I see. Oh. That means it's not just discarded. We show respect to it. Text number 11. There is no differentiation in a reverential treatment between a complete Torah scroll and a single letter that has become detached from a Torah scroll. Similarly, it is forbidden to handle with disrespect even a single bone that has become detached from a sacred body that was recreated in God's image. Rabbi? So even after death, how much more so when a person's alive, the body retains a special status of having been considered the garb of the soul, just like a Torah that becomes invalid, even if there's a little speck or a parchment, a piece of parchment of the Torah scroll, we will have to bury it and take care of it and show it holiness, same as well as when it comes to a person's body. Which brings us now to another very important and unfortunately laxity in today's day and age. Sorry? Rabbi, I have a quick question for you. Go are, ahead. We, are we not allowed to donate any part of our body, like um, if it'll keep somebody else alive. Very good question. I'm going to repeat the question here so people here can see here, though I'm not going to expound on it. The question is, then, does that mean that we're not allowed to donate any part of our body? It's a question that deserves a class on its own. But in short, generally, Jewish people do not donate any part of their body unless they know it's going to save a life directly, meaning we are allowed to desecrate any single part of the Torah, like we discussed last week, if it's going to save a life. But if it's going to be donated, so to speak, to science or in the laboratory where we don't see it saving a life. Now, saving a life means that the saving of the life has to be right now in the present, not in the future, not in 100 years from now. Right now, it's going to save a life. And if right now it's going to there, for example, donating a kidney, part of your liver, those things can be donated and should be donated and it's commendable for a person who does donate it. And there are many Jewish organizations that help people donate kidneys and everything else of that nature. But 
if a person, uh, when he's passing, and don't forget the amount of time that you can use a body to be able to use it for a donation is very short, and many times it doesn't work out. So therefore, when donating, it needs to be guaranteed that it will save a life for it. If it's even a question or a doubt, then you cannot. So they only can donate from a person who's dead, not, or receive from a dead person, not when? No, a kidney, a live person can give his kidney, a live person can give part of his life. They do not allow uh, a transplant or uh, donating from a live person. They do, for, for kidneys, they do. And no, maybe because there's a, that's because I think corruption there, but that's a separate reason. But what about somebody's heart? Sorry? What about somebody's heart? They, they if the, when somebody's heart can only be done when they're passing, but if they know it's going to save another person's life, they're allowed to, but it has to be done at the time, not for later on. Right. So that's why if you're going to sign your, you know, on the back of the license for the organ donation, that's complex because you don't know if the person will actually get it. So therefore it's not recommended. As I said, this deserves a class on its own, but it just threw it out there for what the, I think we actually discussed this in, uh, in our previous medical matters class, uh, JLI courses, but uh, something for future discussion. But now let's move on to the subject on hand, which brings us to a very important and highly revered Jewish tradition called burial. There's a mitzvah and an obligation to bury the dead. As it says in the book of Deuteronomy, page 61, you have it here, text number 12, you shall bury him on the same day of his death. King Solomon talks about burial as well in text number 13. King Solomon uses the terminology, he says, people proceed to their eternal abodes and the mourners go about the streets. The dust returns to earth as it was while the spirit returns to God who bestowed it. A human being is a custodian that God has given us to protect our bodies. We don't have the right to hurt it, to destroy it, to mutilate it, or to burn it. And therefore, when the time comes that God asks for the deposit back, we have to give it back the way we got it. One cannot literally hand over the body to God, but we can put it back in the place that God gave it to us from, where God fashioned it. And God created Adam, the first human being from the earth, as it says, you've come from the earth, and therefore to the earth you will return. As we see it in text number 14, page 63, from the dust, from you are, for you are dust and you will return to dust. That's in the book of Genesis. The body comes from the earth and is entrusted as a deposit to the individual care. Upon death, the deposit must be returned to the earth from where it came and buried there. Interestingly enough, who is the first person to be buried in the Torah? Let's see, come on. Test your Bible skills, anybody? The first person to be buried ever in the Torah. Let's take it. Let's make it easier for you. Who is the first person to die in the Torah? Loss of life. Abel. Cain killed Abel, right? Abel died. Adam didn't know what to do with it. He never experienced death before. Until he saw God showed him a bird, was burying another bird. He realized that that's what he has to do with Abel. And he buried Abel. A bird, yes. A bird was burying another bird that died. And therefore he learned that a person has to be buried. 
From there we saw Abraham went the great lengths, buying a cave, a double cave, a beautiful monument for his wife Sarah to be buried. Isaac and Ishmael buried their father Abraham. Jacob buried his wife Rachel. Joseph requests that he be buried in the land of Israel. Jacob be buried, requested that he be buried in the land of Israel. And nobody else other than God do we find in the Torah buried Moses on Mount Nebuchadnezzar. In the valley opposite base bar. So what do we see from here? Throughout Jewish history, there was always there was something that was considered kaver Yisrael being, being bringing somebody to be buried in a Jewish burial plot. Rabbi? That was considered the highest priority. Even today, there are many organizations that work very hard and diligently to make sure that people should have a Jewish person should have a proper burial. Chesed Shalemes and so on and so forth, and to avoid any type of, uh, you know, that they should not be very God forbid. Even the Israeli army till today goes to great lengths to bringing back soldiers who may be an enemy's son who died on the enemy lines to bring them back and bury them in the land of Israel. Rabbi, but unfortunately, in most recent times. Rabbi? You, yes. Who buried Moses? God. Okay. Thank you. Unfortunately, the Jewish tradition of burial in most recent times has been threatened by a prevalence of popularity of cremation. And I can tell you how many funerals I had to turn down because they were doing cremation. People that I knew, and unfortunately, the last moment they decided that they're going to cremate. Huh? If they're dead, it's very hard to change their mind. And we're going to get to a moment. What, what, if we are, if we have to listen, and I'll get to that in just a second, just to tell you how bad it's become. In 2015, according to the National Funeral Directors Association, for the first time ever, the rate of cremation exceeded the rate of burials. In 2018, 53% of Americans opted for cremation. The numbers are constantly rising, and unfortunately, people, and just a comparison, 1960, only 3.6 of Americans that died were cremated. By the way, you know about the woman who came to the rabbi and said that she wanted to be buried in Bloomingdale's? So the rabbi asked, I don't understand. You don't want to be buried in a Jewish cemetery next to your husband? He says, no, in Bloomingdale's. He says, why in Bloomingdale's? He says, I guess my kids will visit me at least twice a week. But, uh, but what's the percentage of Jews who are cremated? Yeah. The, the percentage of Jews? Uh, thank, there's a lot, unfortunately. But I'm telling you in general in America, so the trend of cremation is going up and unfortunately it, it affects the Jews as well. Um, I can tell you myself, I've been doing funerals for almost 20 years now and it's unfortunately been drastically going up. Maybe of the oh, so this is the interesting thing about it. It's impossible to really know how many Jews are being cremated because they don't keep a, a, so to speak, a, a, a blog of it, a log of it. And not only that, most Jewish funeral homes, thank God, still don't offer cremation. So that's why we don't know. But one of the, there's two reasons why people opt for cremation. One of them, people believe that it's cheaper. Today, it's not necessarily so. Yes, plots do cost money and so on. But there's a, there are many organizations that if it's really a matter of cost, that they will help with the cost of burial. Number two, people think that it's 
better for the environment. In fact, it's worse than the environment, the toxins that happen because of burning the body, that's for the environment. So those two myths that are out there caused cremation to skyrocket in the American society. But why, from a Jewish perspective, what we're focusing on is, from a Jewish perspective, cremation to the body makes it, number one, impossible to fulfill the biblical obligation of burying the dead. But number two, or let's look at it from another angle. When a person cremates, what are they saying? Number one, we believe that our bodies aren't ours. They believe when, when we burial, let's talk about the positive, I should say. Burial is an affirmation that we believe that number one, that our bodies belong to God and we have to give it back the way we got it. Number two, there's a fundamental belief in one of Maimonides' 13 principles of faith is that when Mashiach comes, there's going to be the resurrection of the dead. The resurrection from the dead, that the dead that are buried into their ground will come back to life. The moment the person cremates, what are they saying? It's not going to happen. There's no body. The body can't come back. So what we see over here is, number one, our bodies belong to God. When we bury somebody, we're affirming the belief that our bodies belong to God. It's not for us to decide how to inter the bodies and see the resurrection of the dead as a belief. These two ideas are connected. Why are they connected? Because the significance of our bodies, like we mentioned before, why is our body so important? Because as we mentioned, our body has in it a value of holiness. And because our body has a value of holiness, it, we truly have to care about our bodies. Our bodies are important, number one, because they belong to God. They are the cavity that held the soul, and they will eventually be resurrected. All of these things are intertwined, and all of these are so important. Now, let me just put it out there, make it clear, that we are not talking about people that were cremated against their will. Like the six million Jews that were cremated in the gas chambers, they will definitely be resurrected. They will, they are definitely holy people. They are not only holy, but they're holier than holy. So I'm not talking about those people. When we talk about the prohibition of cremation, it's not talking about just another one of the prohibitions. When we talk about the prohibition of cremation, it's so, it's so great because it's associated with Judaism's core beliefs. And not only that, once you cremate somebody, there's no going back. I had numerous discussions with people who were on the brink of deciding, asked me how I convinced them not to cremate. And with people, the cre argument against cremation, one of them is that once you cremate, it's irrevocable. You're not going back. You can't put the ashes back together. And therefore, even people who maybe for some reason lack some other Jewish observances, this is something which is uh, paramount and important about burial, their natural burial, and how important it should be. And therefore, we today should encourage anybody we know to not, God forbid, opt for such an option of cremation. I just want to take it a step further that, and somebody mentioned before, asked me why I rejected people who asked me to officiate at a funeral that was a cremation 
why I refuse to officiate. Because one of the consequences of having a cremation is that the family does not sit shiva for that person. Because if you recall, why do we sit shiva? And we'll get back, just making full circle now. Is because we're not only mourning with the with the soul, we're not only mourning with the mourners, but it's also for the body who passed on, for the soul. And being that this person cremated, they basically destroyed the soul as well. Another thing is that we find concerning cremation and why it's such a central belief. If the cremation means that I affirm the belief that I believe in the resurrection of the coming of Moshiach, then when I do cremation, what am I saying? I don't believe it. And therefore, as a deterrent against cremation, those that do cremate, the family does not shiv, does not shiva, they do not uh, say Kaddish and so on. However, as I mentioned, this is again, this is again only to people who voluntarily know, A, the prohibition of cremation, B, voluntarily choose to do so, only then does these prohibitions apply. I can tell you an episode where I had a story that I did it at the only funeral of uh, cremation that I did do. And this was, in fact, it was a very sad story. I was the only person at the funeral, literally. Only person, because even the person himself, the deceased, was cremated. And that was because there was a Jewish soldier, a veteran, I should say, not a soldier, Jewish veteran, who lived in Florida, was married to a non-Jewish woman, and she did not want to, because the military was going to pay for the funeral, but she did not want to pay to ship the funeral to Calverton, so she decided FedEx is cheaper than a flight, and she created him against his will. And because it was against his will, I was allowed to then officiate for that funeral, and it was an honor for me to be able to bring those ashes to proper burial. Even the ashes of the time of the people of the six million, they were they tried bringing many of them to be buried because they were cremated against their will. So again, all this that we're talking about is if it's the desire. To take it a step further, to mention what you mentioned before, what happens, and this is a very common argument that people tell me, but it was their wishes. It was the person's wishes. They wanted to be cremated. Yes, I understand all the different things and everything about about it, but that's what the person wanted. So we know generally, according to Jewish law, there's an obligation. There's a mitzvah to follow the, the wishes of the deceased. But I tell you, if the deceased wanted that you should dance three times around their burial when they die, you should do it. They wanted you to sing a certain song, you should follow it, whatever it may be. There's a mitzvah to, to follow the wishes of the, de of, the of the deceased. However, if the deceased requested to do something which is against the Torah, especially cremation, we have an obligation not to listen to them. Why? Because when the deceased comes on high, they will then see, they understand and appreciate the greatness and see the truth because once the soul reaches on high, and not only will they not be upset, but they'll be very thankful that you didn't cremate them. So therefore, even though, yes, there's a generally a mitzvah to implement the desires of the deceased, but if a, request, if a person requests not to be buried, we disregard this request. As we see it in text number 15, if a person requested not to be buried, we disregard the request. This is because burial is a mitzvah, as it is stated, you shall bury him. Rabbi, yes. What happens to the soul when the body is cremated? How is there a reaction of the soul? Or does it 
But unfortunately, if a person is cremated, in the words of uh, somebody once said, cre uh, uh, cremation to the soul is what murder is to the body. Cremation is to the soul is what murder is to the body. So it's safe to assume that even if the deceased asked for a cremation, we should not listen because as it reaches on high and the heavenly mercy will bring on him, he'll bring individuals and will be happy and pray for those people who did not cremate them. And as we say, administering a Jewish burial is granting what the deceased wants presently while it's on high. Another custom, a Jewish custom that we know is that once the deceased is interred and is brought to its final peace, the, we know that the interment does not end the relationship that is there between the person who passed and its family and friends. And therefore, there's a Jewish practice to visit the gravesite of the deceased. There are multiple reasons for it, but as we learned about today, we will see how all this with the nefesh and the ruach comes all intertwined and why we visit. One reason is visiting a gravesite is a very simple reason, is respect for the departed. In fact, there's a law according to Jewish law that if a person hasn't visited the gravesite of their parents in X amount of years, they're not allowed to go back there because it's disrespectful because they haven't been there in such a long time. So it's out of respect. Number two, if you notice people, when they go to a grave, there's stones that they place on top of the monument. That is to show that their memory has not been forgotten, that somebody has been here to visit them. Number three reason why people visit is to reinforce the continuous connection. As we learned before, that especially according to the Kabbalah, that as the soul of ascends on high, the nefesh, which is the part of the soul that is connected to the body, stays in the grave. That means when a person comes to the gravesite, they are actually visiting the soul of that human being that was there in that physical spot. That's why that physical spot is so special. While the ruach, while the spiritual part of that soul may be on high and unconfined and unlimited and unbridled by the physical limitation, the physical part of the soul, the nefesh, is limited and confined to the gravesite. And when we go to the gravesite, we can then enhance our relationship with the deceased by merely visiting the gravesite. Text number 16. We're going to get to them in just a second. Text number 16. The nefesh remains present in the grave due to the fact that it remains among the living and that it's acquainted with their pain. At their time of need, it pleads God for mercy on their behalf. When inhabitants of the world are in need, in the world, when they are in sorrow and visit the cemetery, the nefesh is aroused to their plight as it ascends and awakens the ruach, which in turn entreats God for mercy. Consequently, the Holy One, blessed be, has mercy on this world. What the nefesh is and why the nefesh is, don't forget the nefesh part of the soul is the physical, materialistic part of the soul. So when something is bothering somebody physically, right, or emotionally, when they visit the grave, they are visiting the physical part of the soul. The physical part of the soul remains there. And therefore, when they need something, that physical part of the soul arouses the spiritual part of the soul to think about the physical needs of the person. And that's why it's so important to visit the gravesite of the deceased. As we can see here, the nefesh awakens the ruach. 
And therefore, the Ruach then entreats God and asks God for help. Interestingly enough, the mystics tell us that the dead not only are sensitive, listen to this, to the living who visit the cemeteries, but they are also pleased when they receive visitors. And here's an interesting story. Text number 17. There was once this community that wished to relocate. Here we go. One of the deceased buried in the vicinity appeared in a dream to a member of the community and pleaded, please do not abandon us, for we appreciate your visits to our cemetery. Barzillai the Gilidite declared, I would like to die in my own city. He wished for this to be caused, the deceased appreciated when their loved ones would visit their graves and request goodness for their souls. This improves their condition in heaven and we're there to pray on behalf of the deceased. So what we see over here, and it should be no surprise to us as being that we're talking about the relationship that we have with the deceased, that this connection is mutual. Number one, the dead appreciate visitors. Number two, the connection is mutual. When we visit them, they think about us and their love continues even after the passing and that connection also continues. Number two is that we know there are special times to visit the dead visit the deceased. For example, on the day of their yard site, there's a custom before Rosh Hashanah Yom Kippur on special occasions to go to visit the deceased. What you mentioned before, one of the reasons why there's a custom that people don't visit the gravesite of their loved ones within the first 12 months of passing, because if you recall what we say in the beginning, where's the soul the first 12 months? It's still not settled. And because it's still not settled, it's still hovering. We don't want to interfere, and that's why we don't visit. Well, when it's over there, it, uh, when it goes up, it's Basically, when it goes up, it means judgment. Then it goes back down, and then it needs to be judgment. I don't know. Uh, that's what it's over there. It could be. They, maybe they like making things a little more uh, romantic. Ra but uh, Sorry? What about putting up a gravestone? And a gravestone, that has different... Uh, even when they put up the stone, for example, the Chabad custom is that they put up the stone immediately after Shiva, and the Rebbe did not attend the uh, putting up of the stone of his wife or of his, uh, his brother-in-law when it was done right after Shiva, and only visited again uh, 12 months later. There so are other customs. I know in England they wait four months, in the different communities, they have different customs of when they visit the grave the next time. Over here, the common practice is that a year later, being that the nan, the family can visit, is when they visit again to do the unveiling of the monument, of the stone, but the stone really should be there the sooner the better. The whole unveiling thing, and I'll tell you a rabbi's confession, the whole unveiling thing is just another way of rabbis making money on Sunday. Yeah, I realize that. But now, but you, so the people who put up the stone, it's okay for other people to visit the stone? Correct, it's okay for other people, but not the relatives because they're the ones that have the most intense relationship with the deceased. Okay. And even so, there was a response that somebody once asked the Rebbe if they can, what happened was their mother and father were buried next to each other and their mother or father passed away within 12 months of the other parent. What should they do? So the Rebbe told them they should go, but just stay on the other side, just a distance away, and that should be fine. But what we see over here is that the relationship that the soul has, even after passing with its loved ones, is a mutual relationship. It's not something that's gone and it's over. The soul continues to crave a relationship. 
And much of today's class we devoted to the soul's departure from this world and the continuing relationship that it has with us. And we explained how the soul's disengagement from the body allows us to have a deeper relationship. Just to summarize, we also explained that how we in this world accompany the soul to its painful journey. And we are there mourning with the soul, not for the mourners. And then we continue to say the special relationship that the soul has in, with the deceased, including the body, not only the soul part of it. And then finally, we explained how this relationship leads us to visit even the earthly care and the respect that we have. I'm sorry, the earthly resting place of the soul in its place. On that note, we're just going to conclude today with an amazing letter that the Rebbe wrote in 1958. This letter the Rebbe wrote to Mrs. Hannah Sharfstein, who at the time was a young woman, who within a five-year period lost her father, her mother, and her mother-in-law. And she was a young woman at the time. And during this time, Mrs. Sharfstein wrote an emotional letter to the Rebbe describing how she felt all alone. And over here is the Rebbe's response. And in fact, there was an English. This is the, the original letter that the Rebbe wrote to her in English. The Rebbe begins by saying, blessings and greetings. I received your undated letters in which you write about your emotional upsets in connection with the passing of your mother and the questions which are troubling you. And this connection involving also questions in regard to the passing of your father, peace unto them. And I'm not over here, we just skipped part of the, this part of the letter that the Rebbe speaks to her that we don't have the capacity to understand everything that God does. But then the Rebbe continues. Another fundamental point to remember, which has a direct bearing on your letter, is that all believers in God believe also in the survival of the soul. Actually, this principle has even been discovered in this physical world we are science now holds as an absolute truth that nothing in the physical world can be absolutely destroyed. How much more so in the spiritual world, especially in the case of a soul, which in no way can be affected by the death and disintegration of the physical body. It would be silly and illogical to assume that because a certain organ of the body ceases to function, affecting other organs of the body, the spiritual soul will also be affected thereby. The truth is, that when the physical body ceases to function, the soul continues to exist. Not only as before, but even on a higher level, in as much that is no longer handicapped by the restraints of the physical frame. Thirdly, the attachment of the children to their parents and the general attachment between close relatives during life on this earth is surely not a physical attachment by the respect of physical bodies of the relatives. Essentially, the attachment is a spiritual one due to the spiritual affinity between those concerned and the qualities of the soul, including each spiritual things as character, kindness, goodness, all which are attributes of the soul and not of the body. Therefore, also every action on the part of a person in relation to a beloved person and the desire to benefit that person is not directed towards pleasing his physical body, his physical bone and tissue, for its spiritual pleasure that one is concerned with. In view of the above, it is clear that even after the physical body has been disintegrated and disappeared from view, it is still possible to bring joy and benefit to the soul, which as noted above, not only survives, but does so on a higher level. And all things which have previously brought joy and pleasure to one's parents 
will continue to do so even after they are physically no longer here. These few words that the Rebbe writes to her encompass, I think, everything we spoke about here today. So what we have from today's class is some exercises. Number one, record an insight from this lesson that resonated with you most. And number two, is there a deceased person with whom you wish to strengthen your bond of love? What step can you take to do so? Next week, same time, same place. Those who haven't yet received their books, we should be having more books at the end of the week so you can come and get them. Or let me know if you want me to mail them to you. Today we discussed, uh, today we spoke about the soul's departure from the body. Next week we will talk about those left behind, devastated and brokenhearted. What is the process of Jewish grieving? Any questions? Yes. Can the person that has to be buried in a Jewish cemetery? The short answer is yes. The reason why there's a myth that people with tattoos cannot be buried in a Jewish cemetery in general is because there were. Um, rules that they made in Jewish communities to deter people from doing any abrogation which was public. So for example, a person that publicly desecrated the Shabbos, a person that publicly married a non-Jew, whatever it may be, anything that may have been a public abrogation of Jewish law was excommunicated from the community, meaning that they were not allowed to be buried in the Jewish cemetery. A tattoo was a public abrogation of a commandment in the book of Leviticus, Therefore, it meant that they would not be allowed to be buried in a Jewish cemetery. So that's why it has that still stigma about it. But if especially six million Jews, more, that were killed, and then all those survivors that have tattoos, of course they're going to be buried in a Jewish cemetery. Those were against their will. That was against their will. But even today, most people that get tattoos, very few people, I should say, get tattoos while they're sober. <laughs> but now, uh, second thing is with the you know the Jewish rule is to bury quickly in this scriptless temple. How does that comport with those who die, let's say, here, unfortunately, and want to be buried in Israel and they're from Israel? Back? That's a very good question because Jewish law says as soon as possible, doesn't say within 24 hours. In Israel, um, they would bury the person even at night, and they would do it because, especially in Jerusalem area, where they don't want to keep a body overnight. But if, yeah, but before even, even after they do it at night, they, in some places, if there's no unions, in America, they, would do, they do it in New Jersey as well, not in New York because of unions, uh, but the very fact, as long as you're occupied with burying the person, even if the person's not buried, then it's allowed. They would not extend it. I can tell you sometimes because of bureaucracy, especially now during COVID, there was a lot of bodies that were piled up, so to speak, that were waiting to be buried. And what they did was they buried them on condition here in America. And then once they were able to have the flights and the permits, they took them out of the ground and moved them to Israel. One last question. What about, unfortunately, you go to figure out a plane, the plane goes down in the middle of the Atlantic or something, and there's no body? That's one of the saddest things about these uh, people, for example, on 9-11, that they did not come to proper burial. It is... Unfortunate. It's an unfortunate reality, but that's one of the saddest things that it says. In fact, it's uh, used, if you recall, Jezebel was cursed by one of the prophets that she would not be buried. And that's what the curse was, that when she was killed, the dogs licked her blood. So it's actually uh, not a, a blessing, but people that unfortunately in these terrorist attacks, their souls are in greater places than we can imagine. Any questions from online here? Okay. Well, Thank you.
One second, one more question here. What's the significant, what's the importance of putting a gravestone on the uh, burial site uh, immediately? What's the reason why putting a tombstone on the gravesite if you're not going to be there for another year? Because the tombstone is not for you. The tombstone is for the person who is buried, for the deceased. And therefore, the deceased should have a marking spot where it was buried that A, it shouldn't be desecrated. B, that people should know that somebody is buried there uh, immediately. You know, usually when a person is buried in the Jewish cemetery, the funeral home puts that little flat bar. They put a, they, yeah, they put a little stick there, but yeah, it doesn't so matter. But even so, well, you will find that, let's say today in cold weather, they can't put the stone so quickly. They have to pour cement and they have to make a footing. So not always does it work. But in many cases, we try to make a spot and a, a tomb as soon as possible. We see this from Rachel when she was uh, buried right away. Jacob put a tombstone when she was buried. Yeah. Another question here? Lizzie had a question. What happened? What happened? Oh, I was just saying thank you. Oh. What was your question, Liz? I have a question. Oh, there. sorry. Go ahead. That's okay. Um, what now people are supposed to visit the gravesite. What happens when people move to other states, other countries, or they pass away, there's no more family, things like that. So what do you mean? What happens? Do people still visit the, the gravesite? No. Well, you say that the soul wants the visitors. So but as you read in the story there, that the people wanted to move, and one of the people complained that nobody's going to come and visit us. It is a problem. There are cemeteries in Long Island that probably people haven't visited in uh, eons. There's one in River uh, in Riverhead, yeah, right across the Calverton Cemetery. There's a Jewish cemetery there. Mm -hmm. I can't say nobody visited because I went there because just to see. Um, then there's another one that needs to talk it. I don't think anybody ever went to. I'm saying there's a lot of Jewish cemeteries and the Sag Harbor has one. Uh, yeah, it becomes a problem. There are people that do it as a mitzvah. They go cemetery hopping all over Poland, Russia, just to visit these Jewish cemeteries. So if, should see them. so if let's say I go and visit or anybody goes and visits their family there and you see other people that maybe their grave hasn't been taken care of, there's no stones, you know people aren't coming to visit. Should you say a Kel Rachamim for them too? Um, yeah, I mean, each case, I guess, is a case by case. We're not going to say that everybody should go to every single cemetery and all of a sudden become cemetery keepers. But if a person <laughs> passes by and they see a Jewish cemetery and you're out in the middle of the boondocks and you probably know what the Jew is there, It'll be a big mitzvah for you to walk in there and say a, a capital tillum for the people that are there. Okay. We actually did it when we were uh, young rabbis traveling and uh, we, 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 we drove from California to Texas. So then we stopped along the way. And if there were Jewish cemeteries along the way, we did stop in to uh, say tillum because probably nobody was ever there in the, probably since who knows when, since the oil rush. I don't know. But, uh, is there any specific Tehillim that you should say? Like if any, any Tehillim is always good. Okay. Say the one you know best. Okay. <laughs> okay. Sorry Thank for keeping you, you over time today. Thank and, you. Uh, have a good night. Same time, same place, same link. And uh, everybody should be staying healthy and well. Okay. Thank you. Yes. Thank you. All the best. Take care. Bye. Have a good night. Not in Savannah, Georgia. Yeah. I was in Savannah, Georgia. Doing yeah.